Well, good to see you folks uh, this Lord's Day morning. And hopefully you have some notes in front of you that say, Of God's Decree, number one. If not, there's a few more in the corner of the, the table over here. And uh, just to begin our thinking, I want to encourage you to turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 28 down through verse 37 to kind of orient our minds to the direction of thought we want to pursue this morning. So Daniel uh, chapter 4. And then beginning in verse 28, Daniel chapter 4, and then beginning in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, he was driven away from mankind to begin eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And let us pray. Father, this morning we thank you so much for your, your holy word that you have conveyed to our, our minds and to our hearts. Uh, your character, your nature, your ways, and your purposes. And we thank you this morning that we can gather together as a people of God and begin this day, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. We can begin with our, our minds affected with your pure and holy scripture. We, we thank you for the the privilege of the assembly of the saints and the fellowship that we have with one another. And I would pray these moments for the, the help of your, your Holy Spirit in, in considering this rich theme. I pray it would be edifying to our hearts and to our minds. And so guide us and, and direct us during this, this time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when people um, have embraced Christ as Savior and then they, they move into uh, what is sometimes referred to as Reformed or Calvinistic thought, one of the themes that often often draws them into that area is kind of a robust, full-orbed understanding or appreciation of God's sovereignty or aspects of God's sovereignty. Uh, and as with every doctrine, as you have probably already discovered, uh, there are those who oppose it. Uh, there are some who are skeptical that if you view God as absolutely sovereign, then you are going to become a fatalist of one kind or the other. 
Or if you view God as absolutely sovereign, then man is no longer responsible for his actions, uh, which is an objection that we'll, we'll deal with to some extent in the future. But as always, the, the issue is what does the Bible say about God? What does it say about his character? And even more so, um, I, I think at least from my own heart, and I, I probably speak for many of you as well, uh, there's something peace-producing about being persuaded that God is really God, that he's really sovereign, that he's really ruling, he's really reigning, he is really accomplishing all things after the counsel of his own will. Uh, all of his plans come to fruition. Um, he, he never has to go back and, and redo something or rethink something. Uh, sometimes we make a plan and look back on it and say, well, that didn't work, and he doesn't have to do that. We're unlike him in that respect. And Arthur Pink, um, in his work on the sovereignty of God, with respect to that theme, he wrote, um, the foundation of Christian theology, the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth. It's the sun around which all lesser orbs are grouped. And it's, it's, so it's not just uh, theological, but it's for the good of our own souls. And kind of a longer quote here from Charles Spurgeon that is helpful in this area as well. He writes, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children ought more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the work of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there's no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God in his right to do so, as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter... That is when they are hissed and execrated, we might say, um, denounced. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. So for many Christians, uh, doctrines like these, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the decrees of God, um, they're biblical and um, they're, they're theological, but they're also doxological. They're experiential. They're doctrines that, that you glory in, and there's something peace-producing to the soul in these particular areas that, that God is accomplishing his purposes. So chapter 3 of the Confession is entitled, Of God's Decree, Of God's Decree. The term decree is probably something that we don't use in general conversation too much. You may not have decreed anything recently in your families, but uh, nevertheless, it's, the English word decree occurs a little over 40 times in the New American Standard translation. It's used in the sense of, of command or judgment, and you find it here in Ezra chapter, uh, Ezra chapter 5 and verse 3, towards the end of the verse, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple? Uh, Esther chapter 2 and verse 8. It came about when the command and decree of the king were heard. So you have this sense of an authoritative pronouncement. Um, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 13. So the decree went forth that wise men should be slain. 
Uh, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. So there's a higher authority than Nebuchadnezzar uh, or any other human being. So it's a, it's a word that's used several times in the book of Daniel. Um, so when, when our minds are occupied with the theme of the decrees of God, um, all, all those closely related to the sovereignty of God um, and also to the providence of God, but especially has to do with the, pl with the plans of God. So when you're thinking decrees, think plans and purposes particularly. That's the, the track that we're moving along in our thinking process. There's a, a recent book that has been published on the Confession, uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 in 2022. And uh, one of the chapters here by um, David Charles on God's decree, I'll just read a, the beginning of it. I thought it was very helpful just in kind of setting the tone. He says, we live in a world which appears at times to be a contradiction of chaos and order, freedom and restraint, joy and tears, hope and despair, vanity and purpose. The thoughtful soul needs only a short time of reflection to beg the question, is there a reason or a purpose or a plan to all of this? Honest consideration reveals two possible answers to the question. Life with all its opportunities and disappointments is either one, all darkness, with only an illusion of significance, or it is a kaleidoscope of a masterful display of an immense and infinite mind. The impossible philosophy of nihilism chooses the first answer, that there's no mind or meaning behind life. At bottom, everything is nothing. The Christian religion, however, maintains that all of creation is the creative work of a gracious and powerful creator. Every nursing baby, every beast of land and sea, the silent glow of a starry sky shouts, there is a God, and further, he is majestic. All creatures and events serve part of a grand plan. No event is meaningless in or devoid of playing a part in the outworking of a larger glorious goal. Even mankind's most urgent need, his redemption, is the result of God's own plan or his decree. Here we are confronted with a choice, embrace the darkness and despair of nihilism, or enjoy life with all its promises and challenges as we await the great day of consummation. So some good thoughts there with respect to this particular theme. So first of all, first main point here is some definitions with respect to the theme of the decrees of God. And Wayne Grudem put it like this, uh, the eternal plans of God whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. So we see two things here. One, God is a planning God, and the plans are comprehensive. They, they include everything that happens. We'll say a little bit more about that. But some helpful text, um, and this is how it relates to the boundaries of our lives. Psalm 139, 16. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And then Job 14.5, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set so that he cannot pass. Matthew Henry wrote that it is determined in the counsel and decree of God how long we shall live and when we shall die. The number of our months is with God at the disposal of his power, which cannot be controlled, and under the view of his omniscience, which cannot be deceived. 
is omniscience, which cannot be deceived. It is certain that God's providence has the ordering of the period of our lives. Our times are in his hand. The bounds God has fixed we cannot pass, for his counsels are unalterable, his foresight being infallible, his awareness of the future being infallible. Acts 2.23 is very helpful. Uh, It says, this man, this is in the context of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, this man delivered up, referring to Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Um, this, it's a very instructive text, I think, and we'll return to it in the course of these studies because um, it's made very clear the reason for the suffering and the death of Christ here is the predetermined plan of God. But it includes the, the free and here the, the sinful actions and stratagems of men. In this case, it would be uh, the chief priest and, and Judas and Pontius Pilate. So it includes the actions of, of sinful men as well. And God is still accomplishing his purposes in this very same event. And the point, the way I put this before, is he accomplishes his purposes by working through sinful men because that's all he has, right? <laughs> in this fallen world, there is no other options. He can't work through perfect people because there are none. So he accomplishes his purpose by working through the, the motivations uh, of sinful men. When we see it really, uh, the cross is really a, a kind of a, a way to view or a lens with which, with which to view spiritual reality. It's all part of him, uh, all part of his plan. Uh, for Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, you might turn to the Acts of the Apostles. I want to begin at verse 23. Acts chapter 4. And then verse uh, 23, and then we want to get to verse 28, and especially verses 27 and 28. So Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. Um, Acts 4, 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had Mm -hmm. said to them. And when they heard this, they, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, who do the Gentiles, excuse me, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Then notice verse 27. Truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So that would be the the key thought in those verses. And then um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, with respect to our own salvation, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So when you and I try to account for our salvation, and it kind of, I suppose it depends on the context, if, if I were to ask, well, why are you saved? Why are you a Christian? I mean, you might just say, well, because my dad shared the gospel with me or my mother shared the gospel with me. But if you try to trace it back a little bit further and say, why are you a Christian? You land right here. It's because you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So <clears throat> two points that stand out here. Number one, he chose us. Number two, before the foundation of the world. So the emphasis here on the decrees of God, he's a planning God. He's purposeful and deliberate. And in these texts we see terms like ordained and determined and predetermined or predestined. They all emphasize this. There's some additional definitions that I think are, are helpful. The first one is from Robert Shaw. 
<clears throat> he says, by the decree of God as men, his purpose or determination with respect to future things, or more fully, his determinate counsel, whereby from all eternity he foreordained whatever he should do or were, would permit to be done in time. And then jail, Dag, Baptist, uh, that God has a purpose none can deny, who attribute wisdom to him. To act without a purpose is the part of a child or an idiot. A wise man does not act without purpose, much less can the only wise God. So again, the emphasis here, it's on a pl planning, having a purpose. And also, um, Robert Shaw quotes another theologian here, and, and, and these are in your notes. He writes, no man will deny that there are divine decrees who believes that God is an intelligent being and considers what this character implies. An intelligent being is one who knows and judges, who purposes ends and devises means, who acts from design, conceives a plan, then proceeds to execute it. Fortune was, a worship, was worshipped as a goddess by the ancient heathens, and thus represented as a blind to signify that she was guided by no fixed rule and distributed her favors at random. Surely no person of common sense, not to say piety, will impute procedure so irrational to the Lord of universal nature. As he knew all things which his power could accomplish, there were undoubtedly reasons which determined him to do one thing and not to do another. And his choice, which is founded upon those reasons, was his decree." And then in a much more, uh, in a shorter form, the catechism is helpful. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Next question, how does God execute his decrees? He executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So two elements here, plans, purposing on the one hand, and then the plans and the purpose, his determination come to fruition through his providential, ongoing providential dealings with men and women. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own. Well, this is a really uh, helpful text in, in regard to this whole theme because you, you have this idea of having predestined and then he works all things not some but all things after the counsel of his own will so god is a planning god a predetermining god he's not a deity that's flying by the seat of his pants there's no contingent plans because he works all things after the counsel of his own will you and i might have contingent plans this one didn't work so we try another one but such is not the case with the lord second main thought here the decrees of God have a comprehensive dimension. We've, we've touched on that, but they have a comprehensive or all-encompassing dimension. <clears throat> this point is emphasized in the Catechism. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby his, for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever, whatsoever comes to pass. And in two of the texts which are, are foundational to this point, to be a little bit repetitive, Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, the term works here, um, it's, it's used primarily of supernatural activity. You might turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 1 just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, and just to, to note, just kind of a sidelight here, this term works it's the Greek term energeo, it's where we get the English word energy, and uh, it's especially used of supernatural activity. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse uh, 20, it's translated brought, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
it's actually ascribed to the enemy of our souls, which would be a supernatural being in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then in a positive light, apply it again to the being of God, chapter 3 and verse 20, not to him who was able to do far more abundantly beyond, beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. John Eadie, and I have part of, part of it is in your notes here, John Eadie wrote, and a very helpful commentator on Ephesians, uh, the plan of the universe lies in the omniscient mind and all events are in harmony with it. And then a few thought, more thoughts here that are not in your notes. He says, um, power in unison with infinite wisdom and independent and undeviating purpose is seen alike whether he creates a seraph or forms a gnat, fashions a world or rounds a grain of sand, prescribes the orbit of a planet or the gyration of an atom. The extinction of a world and the fall of a sparrow are equally the result of the free prearrangement. And Romans 8.28, verse you've probably never heard of before, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called uh, according to his purpose. Tom Schreiner in his work on Romans comments, in saying that all things work together for good, um, he's, he's referring to the word all here. It focuses especially on, on suffering, tribulations, but the all-encompassing character of the term uh, should not be ignored. So it's especially helpful because there's lots of things that are happening um, in our lives which are, are not necessarily positive, but God is causing all things to work together for good. A. Hodge writes, This is rendered certain from the fact that all God's works of creation and providence constitute one system. No event is isolated, either in the physical or moral world, either in heaven or on earth. All of God's supernatural revelations and every advance of human science conspire to make this truth conspicuously luminous. Hence, the original intention which determines one event must also determine every other event related to it as cause, condition, or consequent, direct and indirect, immediate and remote. Hence, the plan which determines general ends must also determine even the minutest element comprehended in the system of which those ends are parts. The free actions of free agents constitute an eminently important and effective element in the system of things. If the plan of God did not determine events of this class, he could make nothing certain, and his government of the world would be made contingent and dependent, and all his purposes fallible and mutable, fallible and then changeable. And then, um, so the decrees of God, they have this, this comprehensive, all-encompassing dimension, and then um, this actually should be Roman numeral number four, um, as the number three, so number four. Um, the glory of God is the final cause of all his decrees. The glory of God is the final cause of all his degrees, excuse me, of his decrees. Hodge writes, the final cause of all God's purpose is his own glory. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. And these are, these are comments that Hodge makes on Romans it is for the display of his character everything exists 
and it's directed as the highest and, and noblest of all possible objects. Creatures are as nothing, less than vanity, and nothing in comparison with God. Human knowledge, power, and virtue are their glimmering reflections from the brightness of the divine glory. That system of religion, religion, therefore, is best in accordance with the character of God, the nature of man, and the end of the universe, in which all things of, through, and to God, and which most effectually leads men to say, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory. So what you have there is lesson one on the decrees of God, and we'll continue uh, that in the coming weeks. So let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, I thank you today for the opportunity we have to come together and consider these things and pray it would be helpful uh, to our thinking process, encouraging to our hearts as we think of the kind of God that you are, um, that you are a sovereign God, a ruling God, a reigning God, that you are always accomplishing all of your purposes at all times, and it includes every circumstance in our lives. So I, I pray that you would use these considerations to uh, increase our, our trust in thee and our devotedness to thee, and, and might it be a comfort to our own hearts. And Father, this morning as we would gather together for worship, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for uh, your holy word and for adoration and praise and ask that um, in the meantime our fellowship would be uh, sweet and edifying and encouraging to our souls. So thank you this morning for the time we have to come together and pray that you would just uh, bless our time the rest of this morning and the rest of this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.